Bibles, you can open up to Acts 1. Uh, we're going to jump into the sermon today, and then we're going to respond to the sermon and sing afterwards. So like I said, a little unique, right? Um, changing things up. Um, but Acts 1, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be kicking off a new series. And this is a series on our vision. Um, but it's not a vision series in the way that a lot of people think about a vision series. Um, a lot of times we think of vision as this kind of like, prophetic, here's what we know is going to happen in the future type of way. Um, that's, what, that's what many organizations and churches treat it like. Um, but, but if you think back to 2019, and if you think about like all the churches who probably did vision series, and they're like, this is what we're going to do in 2020, like how many churches saw COVID coming, right? Like, like, all the, like how many churches did visions on every church is going to shut down and the world is going to come to a stop? Um, sometimes we can mistake uh, what we think is God's vision for just our hopes and dreams, right? Um, and so that's not what I mean by a vision series. Um, a vision can be hope. Um, you know, here's what we hope to do. And I think that's closer. But really what I'm after is just a reminder of how simple this is supposed to be. How simple it is when God's people are just com coming together to, to worship. Because we make everything really complicated, um, particularly in the Western world. Um, we make church way too complicated. Um, and so when I say vision, I don't mean something in the future. I, I mean what we're about now. What, what is our vision for who we should be right now? Um, and, and it's not necessarily why we do what we do, um, because we know that, right? Like, why do we come here? Because of Jesus. Um, because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of God's love displayed for us through Jesus. That God demonstrated his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But now that we believe in Jesus, now that we're following him, what do we do? You know, how do we go about living as believers, both as individuals and as a community? Um, and, and for many Christians, the answer would be, I don't know. Um, for many Christians, the answer would be, well, I'll just attend church. I'll have, I'll be a moderately decent person, enough to where the, the world won't think I'm that bad. Or at least I'll hide my worst sins. Um, maybe some people would answer, well, I just need to love. And love is a great answer, um, as long as you can use the Bible to define it, right? Like, we've got to let the Bible define what love is. Um, but here at the bridge, we have three parts of our vision, and it's actually on that sheet that I gave you. It's at the very top. Um, what we want to see happening as a body of Christ, and it's right underneath the, it's right in the logo. We, we want to know God, experience community, and multiply. Those are the three parts. Those are the three things. If you boil it down to the most simplistic idea of what we're supposed to be about, that's what we're about. That we want to know God, experience community, and multiply. We want to be in an ever-growing uh, relationship with him, that through Jesus we can know the Father in an intimate way. Uh, we want to be in an ever-growing relationship with others, that yes, our faith is very intensely personal, but it's also public. Our faith is corporate. When, whenever Paul's writing his letters, like if you go and read the letters to Ephesians, and he's talking about you, every time you see the word you, it's not the singular you, it's the plural you. Um, so if, if you were, if Paul was from the south, like it would be like him saying y'all, like all the time, y'all, 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 y'all. Like, our faith is meant to be corporate. And a lot of times when our faith becomes individualistic, um, that's when we fall into great error. Um, there, that's a, that's a, I wasn't going to say this, but that's the reason why a lot of times, like, if you, if you hear about a, a prominent church leader failing, like, think about, like, a, a mega church leader or something like that, and he fails, the number one reason is because they had no accountability. Because they were kind of up here, and the rest of the congregation was down here. Um, and so we, he... That person that's leading needs people just as much as anyone else. So we're in this together. That's the experience in community. 
And then we're multiplying. We're sharing that love with more and more people. We want grace to extend to as many people as humanly possible. Um, so that's, that's what we're about here at the bridge. But before we dive, like in the next three weeks, we're going to dive into those particulars. But before we dive into that vision, what I want us to do at the outset is look at the beginning of Acts, because I think it provides a good example for how we begin, like where the starting point is. So look with me at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. It says, Then they, and and you'll hear about who the they is in just a minute, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, And Judas, the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. All right, pop quiz time. Who can tell me who wrote the book of Acts? Does anyone know? It was Luke. That's right. Um, He's the same guy who wrote what we call the gospel of Luke. And he wrote Acts as a way to highlight the beginning of the early church. So the reason why it's called Acts is because it's literally the actions of the early church people. Um, so it's, it's the acts of the early church followers. Um, and Acts 1 is, is preparation for everything that follows, and that's why it's important for us to look at it today. Because what happens after Acts 1? The, the believers go out, and they start sharing Jesus, and the world is turned upside down. All of these churches start forming. All of these things start happening, and it all begins in Acts 1. Acts 1 is so important. So I want us to focus on three things that we can learn from this passage. First, Uh, Number one, we don't ignore the reality around us. Um, Look at verse 12. It says they returned to Jerusalem. In in order for us to understand uh, what these people were doing, I need need us to think about what they were doing before and what they were going to be doing after. So they returned to Jerusalem. Does anyone know where they were returning from? It says Mount Olivet, but like what had happened that they they were coming back to Jerusalem for? Jesus had... Jesus had died, Jesus had resurrected, and then he had met them, and then what happened? Jesus is where? What? He's gone. Yeah, he ascended back to the Father. And so all of a sudden, they're left leaderless. All of a sudden, they're like, okay, well, we're going to go back into Jerusalem. That's what Jesus told us to do. Uh, and so you have these main disciples. You have these men and women that had followed, been following Jesus for some time, including Jesus' mother Mary. And think about their, their life. If you could look at the Gospels, think about the ministry of the disciples. They had some amazing ups and downs in ministries. Like you have times where they had great faith, like Peter telling Jesus, Look, you know, tell me and I'll come walk to you on water. And then you had times where Peter and all the other disciples had, you know, they messed up and they were arguing over who was the greatest, right? Like they had ups and they had downs just like we do. But now they were at a turning point. Their leader had been arrested. Their leader had been crucified. Their leader had been resurrected. Their leader had appeared to them. And some of them, it says, uh, didn't even, like, couldn't hardly believe that it was him, which I think is pretty realistic. Like, if someone came back to me, and I'd seen them die, and they were there, like, I would, I would have some, you know, tension there, too. Um, but then he had ascended back. And so, um, so they're left, okay, well, what do we do now? Um, think about it. One of their closest friends, they had Judas. Remember, Judas was part of the 12 closest people to Jesus, had betrayed them and their master, and now he was dead. And so they're dealing with a lot of interpersonal grief as well. Now they had been given a mission by Jesus. At the end of the book of Matthew, he told them to what? Go and make disciples. He didn't say, go and fill up as many people in a church as you possibly can. He didn't say, go and have the greatest amazing service as you possibly can. He said, no, 
Go and make an impact on the community around you. Go and make disciples. Go and let people know of my love, who will let people know of my love, who will let people know of my love. Um, he said, go and make disciples. Right before this passage in Acts, he tells them, you're going to be my witnesses to all the nations, beginning right here in Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so these people, they've been through ups and downs in ministries. They believe in Jesus. Jesus changed their life. So now, what do they do? Where do they start? Where do they go from here now that their leader is gone? So there's lots of unknowns, right? Like these people, they had no idea necessarily what was next. How will ministry go without Jesus? People are hostile to the message. I mean, like Jesus was preaching love and forgiveness and he got crucified. What if I go out and I begin preaching that I'm with Jesus too? You know, what, what are they going to do to me? Where do I even begin? So the next steps weren't going to change what had happened in the past, and it, and it couldn't change some of the circumstances that were around them now. But what they realized was they didn't have to fear the unknown. They didn't have to fear the difficult days ahead. They were aware of the challenges, and we're going to see what they did. Instead of fearing, we're going to see what they did in exchange. But for us, we're like the disciples. The bridge has had many ups and downs, just like they did. Thinking more recently, we've just endured a, over a year of not being able to consistently meet together. Like, I know, I hope that I'm somewhat compelling sometimes when I speak, but I know that there had to have been times when every one of our families was like, I'm tired of watching Matt on video. <laughs> you know, like, I can't take any more of that. Um, we, we don't even watch me on video. I just teach it to my family separately. Um, you know, this, this is literally the first time that we've met two Sundays in a row in over a year and a half. Like, that, that's, you know, what, 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 is that, what does that do to a body of Christ? COVID made it hard for so many. If, if you weren't sick, you were impacted economically, emotionally, relationally. Um, even thinking beyond COVID, in the last two years, we've dealt with social unrest. We've dealt with political divides. Uh, if you think about it, grace, mercy, forgiveness, those things have taken a back seat to who can yell louder and who can push back harder. The loudest voices in the room and the most divisive ones are the ones that are sticking out on the national stage. And so you, you take all of that, and, and there's a lot of turmoil around not only our body of Christ, but churches around our area and the community, right? Um, I mean, like, I can't think right now of a church right now who's not going through difficult times. Um, I've actually just been meeting with some pastors and praying with them, like, over the last two or three weeks for things that are going on in their church. And so now for the second Sunday in a row, we've been able to meet, but we're in a new building, right? Like, this isn't the building that we're used to. We're not... It's, it's a little odd getting here. It's, it's at an odd time, which is challenging for so many people, and that's why we're changing it in July. You know, but when we change it in July, it's going to be an odd time for other people. So, like, you know, there's going to be challenges. Right now, we don't have child care like we used to have. We're working on that and hope to have that in the next couple weeks, but, um, but that's a challenge. We're beginning the search for a new worship leader. Um, even today, you know, we had, to, we had to really adjust to what we were doing. Um, we're in the middle of summer, and what happens in the summer? Everyone goes on vacations and goes places, so it's, it's a really hard time to have your second Sunday in a row when you're just getting back together, um, but so it's going to take a while for us to have consistent attendance. You know, one group's going to be here sometime, the next group's going to be here the next time, and, but here's the thing. Just like the disciples, we don't have to fear the unknown. We don't have to fear the difficult days. We can be aware of the challenges, but we can know that, that there is a God who is greater than all of those challenges. Like the disciples, we've tasted and seen that God is good. I can, I can think of just hundreds and hundreds of things that God has done over the last 12 years. 
God is good. We've enjoyed time with him, and, and now, just like them, we've been given a mission. We're, we're given the same mission as the disciples. Go and make disciples. Go into all the world. And so for us, we break that mission down into three things. Like I said, know God, experience community, and multiply. And so when we look at these challenges, when we look at the mission, and now we ask, okay, God, now what? Now that, now that we're able to start meeting together again, we, we see the challenges, we recognize them, we're not submitting to them, but where do we go from here? Where do we start? Which brings us to the second point. Look at verses 13 and the beginning of 14. It says, And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, and all these were with one accord. And I want you to pay attention to that last part, with one accord. They were united. The second point, if you're keeping track, is we are in it together. And, and that word together, you can capitalize, you can bold, you can underline, you can star, you can circle, do whatever you can to make that an important word. Because you see that little phrase, one accord. That is repeated over and over and over again in the book of Acts. If you go to almost any of Paul's letters, like I said earlier, you'll see him talk about the unity that we have in Christ. When, when he's talking about how a believer should behave, most of the time it's not the outward things that we typically think of, but it's how we behave with each other, loving each other, bearing with one another, encouraging one another. Like th that was hint to him, that was the standard for how we are living as believers. How well are we doing those one another's? And so we're in this together. They, the disciples, they prepared for the task ahead together. These were people who didn't naturally get along. They had their fair share of problems during Jesus' ministry. They argued over who was the greatest. Um, there was a point where James and John, I think it was James and John, forgive me God if it's the wrong two, um, but they, they, had a, they had a problem with some people in a city and they asked Jesus, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to consume the people of that city? And Jesus looks at them like, are you kidding me? Like, that's crazy. You know, like, no, we're not going to do that. Like, step back here. You know, they, they had big personalities and big ambitions, and they were a mix of professions and backgrounds. Think about, think about who was in this room right now. You had common people, like fishermen. Um, you had deniers. You had doubters. You had tax collectors. You had sinners. You had nationalistic zealots. All of these people coming together, choosing to love each other because of Jesus. And that's what love is. It's a choice. Love, love, yes, can be an emotion from time to time. But when it comes down to the hard days, love is a choice. It, it's a choice to love even if it drains you. I'm, I'm sure there's times when my wife has to love me even when I'm drawing her to her wit's end. You know? Um, that never happens for me to her. She's just always perfect. Um, <laughs> love you. Um, you know, it's, it's a choice to love, even if it drains you. Um, even if you don't get the best from someone else, you love them. Even if it costs, you love them. Jesus wanted them to be together, and so they committed to it. And so likewise, Jesus wants us to be in this together. The, the church is meant to be a mix of people, right? Like, it's meant to cross economic lines. The church is meant to cross racial lines. The church is meant to cross national lines. The church is meant to cross personality lines. There should be people that you sit next to or near to in every Sunday service that would absolutely drive you crazy if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus loves you both, right? Um, but 
Jesus is better than personality lines. The, the love is meant to cross business lines. Whatever your profession, we invite you here. The church is meant to cross political lines. When we, when we come through the door, we don't check to see if there's a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent next to your name. We love each other because Jesus loved us. Whatever Jesus is about to call us to, whatever Jesus is about to call us to as a church, it begins with a commitment to be in it together. And so whether we are 20 or 40 or 100, we are only going to be as effective as we are committed to him and to each other. That's what I want. I, I want to love each other so well that it doesn't matter how many people are in here on a Sunday morning. I mean, obviously, we'd love for more and more people to be here because that would mean that more and more people know who Jesus is. But I want us to love each other in such a way that when two or three are gathered, we're excited to be together, excited to encourage one another, and excited to worship Jesus. Um, but we're only going to be as effective as we are committed to him and to each other. So instead of looking at the circumstances that could overwhelm us, think of Peter walking on the water. Why did Peter fall when he was walking on the water? What was it that made him fall? Someone tell me. Yeah, he took his eyes off of Jesus. Is that what you're going to say? See, yep, double. Um, so he took his eyes off of Jesus because he saw the wind and the waves. The wind and the waves were already there, but he had his eyes on Jesus. When he took his eyes off the, of Jesus and put them on the wind and the waves, that's when he began to fall. So instead of looking at the circumstances that could overwhelm us, instead of looking at our differences that could distract us, that's what the world wants to do. It wants to distract us by all of our differences. We, we can embrace the differences instead of being distracted by them. We must look at Jesus, and when we look at Jesus, we are united in him. And so when we've acknowledged the current situation, when we've committed to do this together, when we're committed to each other, then what do we do? What's the first step? Look back at verse 14. Last thing. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. If you're taking notes, the third thing is we pray. It's so simple. We pray. Jesus had told them to go and wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. So as they waited on him to send them out, they came together and they sought the Father in prayer. And I just want to make a couple of observations about what we don't see in this verse. Notice in this verse, it doesn't give us a structure to their meeting. At least we're not told that there was structure. It's not this organized, formulaic event. You don't have people in despair because Simon forgot his guitar. Like, what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to meet together, Simon? You don't have your guitar. You know, they're not worried about how long something will last. Like, man, it's been an hour. Can't do this anymore. You know, like, they're not worried about, okay, well, why isn't there a sermon and five songs? They're not worried about who's there and kids' rooms and all that. Like, they're just together because they know they have a mission, and they know they have to pray and ask for God's power and help to complete that mission. There's a, there's, a, there's a level of brokenness and humility in that. Because all those other things, that structure, which is good, are, are things that we're very self-reliant on. If, if, if I can control how the service goes, if I can control who's speaking, if I can control how the sound is, if I can control, 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 and what they were doing was saying, God, we can't control anything. What we need is your spirit to control us. And that's, that's a lesson that's hard to learn. Um, we're not told exactly how they prayed. I, I would love to know that. Like, how did this prayer time look? Um, what, what did they ask for? I, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall, right? Like, listening in on those conversations, listening in on that prayer. But all it says is that they were, they were with one accord, they were together, and they devoted themselves to prayer. That word devoted just, I mean, that just, I, I really want to dig into that word. And I wish I knew more about what it meant that they were devoted to prayer. 
Like, it wasn't just like they, they, they threw up a prayer and then they were done and they were like, all right, let's go eat. You know, like, they're gathering together to pray and beg for God to move. God, let us know when it's time for us to go out into the world and care for people. God, let us know what you want us to do next. God, give us mercy. God, you know, a bunch of people want to kill us. Will you protect us? Will you help us stay bold in the midst of all that? What did, what did that prayer look like? If you, if you add up the time spent, and most people would say it was 10 days, 10 days of primarily devoting themselves to asking for God's help. I'm sure they went in and went out, but their primary focus during, those, during that time was gathering together to pray. But they were asking for God's help because that's what prayer is. Prayer is an acknowledgement that we need help. It's, it's humbling ourselves before our creator. They were following Jesus' orders. Wait for God's empowering. And so those early believers, they turned the world upside down. Just go read the book of Acts. But they turned it upside down not because of how clever they were or how smart they were. They turned the world upside down because of God's power working through them. And starting in Jerusalem and moving outward, wave after wave of people started trusting in Jesus, following him, proclaiming him as the much-anticipated Messiah. But it all began with this small group of believers gathering together for prayer, devoted prayer, something some of them failed to do in Gethsemane. Remember Gethsemane when Jesus goes to pray and he says, not not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And he goes back and he checks on some that he told to pray and they're asleep. Those same disciples have an opportunity here to pray and ask for God's favor. So, God, I can only imagine the, the thoughts that must have been going through those people's minds in the upper room, the, the context that they were in, worrying about their families' lives, worrying about persecution, grieving the loss of their, their friend and mentor, their savior. And then wondering, how in the world will we go out and do the things that Jesus has told us that we're going to do? And God, I want to have a little bit of that humility that, that drove them to their knees where they just knew that they had to get together to pray. Because I know that my first instinct is not to pray. My first instinct a lot of times is to try to fix things on my own. Or my first instinct a lot of times is to distract myself with entertainment from the problems that seem to be. But God, I pray that we would run to you because you created us, you sustain us, you, you ordered the world, and Father, you know how we best work. God, uh, the, the spirit that is, was at work to raise Jesus from the dead is a spirit that is at work within us. And so, God, I pray that you would demonstrate your power in, in, in the middle of our lives, in our families, in our communities, um, so that we can make your name known. We love you, and we give you all praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.